Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Richard Powers, whose latest novel is The Overstory, other novels, Orfeo, Echo Maker, The Time of Our Singing. I believe this is the 12th novel, and this one deals with trees. What brought you to write The Overstory? That's a good question. I'd written 11 novels over the course of almost a third of a century, and the novels had had many different concerns and topics, music, game theory, business, you name it, I've tried to write about it. But mostly I've tried to write about the larger frameworks, the larger contexts for human activity, to put private personal stories in the setting of more sweeping, wider political and social and scientific concerns. I had, however, missed a huge part of the story, which is the story of humans trying or not trying, uh, succeeding or failing to live in the world beyond the human, to come to terms with the natural world, the world of non-humans that isn't operating on our time frame or with our values or toward our ends. I was living in Stanford and teaching there and in the heart of Silicon Valley and the craziness that comes when you compress a lot of money and power and ingenuity and invention into a small uh, part of the world. And I was getting up into the Santa Cruz Mountains as a kind of getaway from the go-go life down in the valley. And as a lot of people in this area know, there's huge amounts of of gorgeous set-aside open space preserved there. You can walk from San Francisco to San Jose on open space land. And a lot of that land is second-growth redwood, which is a, a magnificent experience. I mean, people here know it quite well and maybe even take it for granted. But for a Midwesterner like myself, it was eye-opening. It was just like stepping into uh, the largest and most beautiful cathedral I'd ever been in. And I guess uh, one day walking around in, in uh, those forests, those regrown forests up near Skyline, I came across an old one. And I had been marveling at what a redwood could do in 100 years. It's a magnificent, fast-growing, immense and imposing tree, even at, uh, at a century at a millennium out of this world and it just becomes another kind of reality altogether and looking at this thing that was you know as wide as a house and as tall as a football field and thousand two thousand years old you know, i just had a flash of you know a vision almost of what these forests must have looked like before they went under the saw to, to build and to rebuild san francisco and i thought of that sense of you know that silicon valley was down there because these forests were up here. The forests made it possible. And I thought, I've never seen that story treated in literary fiction before. I'd like to give it a try. At what point was that in your writing? I hadn't quite finished the previous book, but it was in hand. 
And as usual, each of these books grows out of the unsolved problems of the previous one. The previous book was about an avant-garde composer who has one last hurrah, one last transgressive act that gets him in trouble with the powers that be and is unwittingly labeled a, a, a bioterrorist. But I wanted to explore that notion of what it would take to put a person at, at odds uh, with the status quo, with the law, for purposes bigger than themselves. When might it be justified? What might push a law-abiding person over the edge? And that's why my novel about bioterrorism was followed by this much larger, much more expansive novel about eco-terrorism, but also simply about eco affirmation about learning to see the world that isn't our world. Had you finished the novel by the time Trump was elected? And if you hadn't, did that change your perception of what you were saying? You know, the book was completely blocked out. And I had many solid drafts before I came to the <laughs> incredulous understanding that this was going to happen. And I actually still haven't quite wrapped my head around it, I'm <laughs> right. sorry to say. But uh, uh, I thought on the one hand, you know, this is cataclysmic. And how am I going to, to publish this book about the need to come home, the need to, to meet and accept the neighbors and learn to understand their time and, and their motive and their agency in a country that has just flown in the face of everything that the book is about? But as time has passed and as, as the, the very difficult months of this administration have unfolded, I feel almost grateful to have brought about a book like this at a moment where there might be a whole lot of people who want to hear a story like this because it is so very different than the story that we're getting every day in the papers, the story that's doubling down on a model of control and mastery and domination of the non-human world, rolling back this half century of incredible work on the part of eco-activists and uh, environmental lawyers to begin to accommodate the wider world. To now be here more than, more than a, a year into this administration uh, at a place where so much of that half-century work is being undone I'm just grateful to at least have told one story that might stand in opposition to that. We'll get back to that element in a moment. But first, I'd like to get back to elements in the overstory. The book opens with material about the American chestnut tree. I had talked to somebody who was talking about how the chestnut is now dying, but apparently that happened a century ago, and I'm trying to put the pieces together. Let me give you the timeline. The American chestnut, one of the truly great eastern trees, in fact, it's often called America's perfect tree because it is a gift to us in every category in which we use a tree. Enormous, long-lived, gorgeous, great shade-giving tree, the wood was magnificent for building, for making furniture, for carving. Every year, it would produce copious nuts 
fall after fall after fall. In fact, where I now live in southern Appalachia, they say you could walk up and down the paths in those mountains shin deep in chestnuts. A, a magnificent, complex food, but so plentiful in that area that people would feed it to their pigs, to their livestock. This tree that enabled a way of life throughout Eastern America at one time uh, accounted for perhaps one out of every four eastern trees in the re in its native region. In 1904, coming in on some plants imported from Asia, was a fungus that first manifested itself in New York. And it was identified within a year of the first outbreak and proved to be 100% fatal with each incursion. And from 1904, to 1940, the country was helpless to do anything except stand and watch as this fungus made its way down from New England farther and farther every year, down into the, into the heart of the chestnut range until virtually every American chestnut matured nut-producing tree was gone, and, it, and they were gone by 1940. There were a few trees that were spared outside the native range, I have heard of a, of a very small handful of trees inside the native range that seem to have some resistance. Of course, it's tragic when you walk in the Smokies where I live now and you see the little chestnut basil sprouts springing up from the stumps of these magnificent giants. I mean, a chestnut could get 25, 30 feet in circumference, and these were big eastern trees. It was sometimes called the redwood of the east. These basil sprouts will struggle up for four or five or six years, and then the moment they start producing nuts and the bark starts to fissure, they're done for. It's one of the great traumas of Eastern American life. Those urban people, for instance, who remember uh, elm disease and how this beloved street tree disappeared, it really is nothing in comparison to, to the disappearance of this tree that really was a way of life for so many people. What are the chestnuts that filth Appalachia now. There are forests in Appalachia. There are forests in Appalachia. Many other native trees in that region have come in to, to fill in uh, the chestnut range. Uh, if you go to the Smokies, you'll see an awful lot of rhododendron. The rhododendron has come in into the understory and, and uh, uh, compensated for the, for the lack of the chestnuts. And those forests are always changing anyway. But you can imagine a tree that was so prevalent and so prominent, a climax tree, you know, a linchpin tree in those ecosystems, that it's been a real change to the nature of the forests there in the absence of that tree. There is mention in um, the overstory, and I did some research, they've now created what they think is a tree combining American chestnut and Chinese chestnut, creating a tree that would survive. Yes. There are actually a couple of different projects to bring back the American chestnut, and, and they're using different methods. It's wonderful that more than one exists and that they're happening in parallel. Uh, the one that you're referencing is being run by the American Chestnut uh, Foundation. They're back-crossing the American chestnut genome with the Chinese chestnut genome, and they're trying to remove everything except the blight-resistant genes. It's proved to be a little more complicated than they anticipated when they started out the project. This is a long project. They've been going decades now. But just in the last couple of years, they have released to the public, it's very exciting, their first seeds, and they're calling it Chestnut 2.0. They hope that it will express phenotypically just the way the American chestnut did. It's very, very nearly a pure American chestnut. 
they hope that as they run these crowdsourced field trials, that they have a tree. Not every one of these new chestnuts is going to survive, but they hope that enough will survive to get a foothold and to start establishing a blight-resistant strain. I have gotten the chestnuts from the foundation as gifts for friends who read my book in manuscript. I thought this was the absolute best way that I could uh, repay this gift of having someone read a story and, and help you create a, a better version of it uh, to give them something that might actually be a new chapter in this magnificent American tree. Richard Powers, once you realize you can't tell the story of trees from the perspective of a tree, you created essentially eight stories involving nine people. And these stories interweave to a greater or lesser degree. What brought you to creating that kind of tale, which is almost, I guess, like roots of one story? Right. In fact, the first section of the book is called Roots. And it unfolds, as you say, almost like eight sequential short stories, self-contained. And the reader isn't at first aware of anything to link one of these characters to the other, except that each of these characters has some primal experience with the tree, something that opens their eyes to the relationship between their own life and the life of these other creatures that unfold on such a different time frame and un under such different circumstances. I did, as you say, you know, my, my first dream was that, uh, you know, if, if I was serious about telling a story that challenges this notion of human exceptionalism, this idea that we're somehow outside of or independent of the rest of the living world, wouldn't it be marvelous to let the trees be the protagonists, to have them as you know front and center as the characters in the story? And that, that did have some challenges with regard to keeping a reader's interest for <laughs> How far did you get in that? I struggled with it for a couple of months. And in fact, the, the ghost of that attempt is in the book, because although I did end up making this necessary compromise of having human proxies as, as the people who carry the emotional burden of the story, and the book is a traditional story in that regard, you follow the fate of these people, you see their character flaws, you see them bumping up against each other and joining forces with each other having tragedies and setbacks and, and so forth. It does unfold in a classic character-driven way. But in and among these nine characters are trees, supporting actors, who get named, who have a presence, who have an agency, and whose nature, dramatic nature, and uh, role in the story is uh, asserted again and again through the eyes of these different characters. So a bit of that attempt, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't a wasted time to try to do that. A bit of that attempt remains in the final shape of the book. The book itself, The Overstory, takes us through about, I guess, 35 years of hard to tell because you, <laughs> you're not clear on the years, right. probably specifically for that reason, right. to keep it open. Right. It deals with variations on things that really happened. One of the centerpieces of the story concerns an attempt by ecological activists to keep an old-growth forest from being destroyed by a man and a company who, the guy who's leveraged 
to buy the company and then needs to sell that off. That's a real story. And people in this region will recognize the Pacific Lumber story and Charles Hurwitz and Max Sam and Save the Headwaters. And they will also recognize activist uh, interventions farther north, the Deep Creek confrontation and so forth. There are other ghosts of the now legendary uh, Redwood Summer and other characters uh, in this region and in the Pacific Northwest, uh, references to, to figures or, let's say, pastiches or composites of historical characters and historical events. But outside of that 35-year frame, there's a you know, there's a larger that the nine characters' backstories and the and the associations that it takes them through, and uh, a careful reader will also see the way in which uh, older American stories, American transcendentalism, uh, Thoreau and Whitman and Emerson, uh, but also myths and legends, indigenous myths and legends. Uh, not just from this continent, from around the world. And the threads of tree stories as far back as Ovid, for instance, let me tell you, let me sing now about how people turn into other things. Those fabrics are woven through this central drama that has this real-world political antecedent, and it turns those events into a kind of contemporary myth. Taking nine characters, eight stories, because two of the characters are together, and weaving it, it sounds as if you had the entire outline before you actually <laughs> sat down and wrote it. Well, I, I hope it reads that way, but the truth is uh, we learn by going where we have to go, and this is, this is the product of five years of many, many aborted uh, trails, uh, many out and backs, many loops that I didn't intend to be loops. Uh, so a lot of hiking around in the woods, sometimes without a compass, before I did get that final shape and before I was able to groom it into something that feels like a continuous narrative. For you, Richard Powers, when you're doing your research, and there's a tremendous amount of research, how do you manage to find that balance between getting research into a book and yet understanding that you can't overload the book yeah. because then it just becomes this weird monster of a hybrid. And I have written some weird monster hybrids. And there was a time when I was a younger man when the project involved very willingly deploying a lot of information uh, because my goal you know, for some of the books involved trying to juxtapose or triangulate between a very visceral narrative and a very reflective and, and ruminative one. So to, you know, to have drama alongside data was part of the design of some of the earlier books. This is a very different kind of project. I did read copiously for it. Six years ago, I would have had trouble telling you the difference between a sycamore and a maple. But over the course of these five years, I read well over 120 books on the subject of trees, uh, not just the botanical and biological, not just the field guides, but social histories of trees, the politics of the timber wars, you know, basically everything I could get my hands on. And it was absolute delight. It was, I didn't want to read anything else. I, it was simply my daily bread. It was my daily pleasure. But that's not everybody's daily pleasure. The key was how to make 
the astonishing things that have been happening and being discovered about trees over the last several decades that have profoundly changed our understanding of what these creatures are and what they're doing. I hope we can get to that. How to take that deeply scientific, deeply empirical revolution and make it compelling drama, put it into the lives of people, subsume it into their concerns, their hopes and their fears and their desires. And while you do learn a heck of a lot about trees by the end of this book, it is as a kind of appendage to the forward motion of the narrative, these nine lives barreling to their conclusions and having their own perception of who they are, their own understanding of how the human came to be changed by the transformation in their understanding of, of what these other things are, what these other creatures, 100,000 species of creatures up on woody trunks turning sunlight into food. You have a character named Patricia Westerford who does research on tree communication. And I was talking with a friend of mine who is a landscape person, mm -hmm. And I mentioned some of the elements of this and how trees communicate with each other, specifically producing insecticides, mm -hmm. which is part of Patricia's learning in the book. He said, oh, yeah, that research is done. That's real. All of the science in the book, which a first-time reader might say sounds like magic realism, sounds woo-woo, as it was one reviewer called it, is in fact grounded in absolutely published, vetted, and confirmed scientific research. So let's talk first about Patricia's early discoveries in over-the-air plant communication. So a tree that's under attack by insects does start to produce its own insecticides. That's pretty remarkable in its own right. She discovers something even more remarkable, which is that that tree under attack begins to pump out airborne chemicals, signals, that alert nearby trees that haven't been attacked by insects to start producing their own insecticides. That somehow these pheromones that are, that are put out over the air are acting as if this woods or forest is part of a shared immune system. So these nearby trees can get going and stave off an attack even prior to the arrival of the insect. And in fact, she discovers that a tree can call in an air force. It can put out signals that attract other kinds of insects, for instance, wasps, to come and prey upon the insects that are feeding on it. This idea that you know there's a signal being sent and a signal being received chemically over the air by these trees strikes her colleagues as so outrageous, her male colleagues, I, I should add, uh, as so outrageous that they ridicule her and ultimately hound her out of the field. And she leaves the discipline in disgrace and she goes underground. And it isn't until years later that she's vindicated. By then, she's on an even wilder project, which is studying the ways in which trees are actually networked together underground by fungal filaments that are connecting the trees in networks of exchanged food and secondary metabolites. This relationship between trees and fungus, I mean, it sounds out of this world. The, the fungus can't 
photosynthesize for itself. So its filaments go right into the roots of the trees. The trees supply the fungus with hydrocarbons and sugars. The fungus in return is extremely good at extracting minerals and secondary metabolites from the soil and giving them to its host trees. But it's doing even more than that. I mean, the fungus will make little lassos out of its out of its filaments and uh, and trap animals, uh, tiny soil invertebrates, uh, springtails, for instance, and digest them and feed them to the trees. And the fungus is distributing food among these trees in a system in what Suzanne Simard, who's a researcher, uh, one of the leading researchers in this study of mycorrhizal connection, calls the wood wide web. Big trees are keeping little trees alive. Healthy trees are, are healing sick trees. Uh, there's an amazing socialist cooperative economy going out there in the woods, the woods that we thought until a short while ago were driven entirely by competition. So this is an essential part of Patricia's story. And by having that key, she's trying to bring a message back to people about our gross misunderstanding of just what's happening out there and how, how sadly we've underestimated how reciprocally connected together all things in a forest are. In terms of cooperation versus Darwinism, mm. uh, you did this amazing interview in the L.A. Review of Books, and I urge people, if they're still interested, to go and read this. You can find it just by Googling Richard Power's name. You say, climate change denial may be just a manifestation of Jameson's observation that it is easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. And I think that ties in directly with what you just said about cooperation versus, I guess, again, you know, survival of the fittest. Yeah. And scientists who are looking to bring to the public this deepening understanding of how much more important cooperation is than competition are, are urging new kinds of vocabulary uh, and, and a real revolution in, in thought. And some have suggested this uh, not especially elegant word, uh, coopetition, uh, to show that this dependence does have elements of both. The key thing to remember is when we say that natural selection and survival of the fittest is a sculpting that shapes an organism to its environment. The key insight here and in the book is that the environment is mostly living things, right? So to, to be suited to the environment means to be suited to live in and among the other living things. That's something that we have not done. And that's something in Jameson formulation that convergence on individualist commodity capitalism that now seems like the inevitable arrival point of cultural processes that we could not arrive at any other configuration. There is no more efficient or appropriate or life-affirming configuration that we could arrive at is, in fact, a conjuring act of sorts. It's externalizing costs. It works under the assumption that we have mastered the living world, that we can make it do our bidding. Now the bill is coming due. And all of those stories that we've told that start with this premise that the drama, 
the, the conflict between the human and the non-human has been solved, all of those stories have to be thought of again. I believe that literary fiction in the future will be dominated by the growing understanding that the battle that we thought had been finished and judged in our favor is coming back to us with a vengeance. I keep thinking that as we see this cult of individualism, the cult of Ayn Rand, right. but going further than that, that at the same time we see that, we see the opposite of it uh, in your book and books by Kim Stanley Robinson, Netflix show called Sense8, mm -hmm. in which different people can actually kind of yeah. meld together. Yeah. These all seem to be pushing against this. So you're, you're getting pushback, but it isn't necessarily in opposition. It's just coming up. I'm so delighted that you mentioned Kim Stanley Robinson. And just by coincidence, I'm actually going to be visiting with him in a couple of hours. I admire him uh, as much as I admire any living writer. And he really does have a handle on the largest pictures, uh, the largest stories of human destiny. But here's an interesting thing. Sense8 and Robinson belong to this sometimes, I mean, often uh, absurdly isolated or ghettoized domain of science fiction. And I, for whatever reason, have been declared a literary author. But my heart is really with these people who are asking time and time again these questions about the world beyond us. My point earlier is that it's the literary authors who have lost that, that question. They've become completely committed to the psychological novel or the novel of domestic or small-scale social relations. And to go to the vision that is absolutely status quo in, in science fiction is incredibly salubrious. It's like a breath of fresh air to, to go into this world where they where the, the, the readers and the writers say, of course, of course we have to be continuing to ask this question about humans versus non-humans. That's the key question. If we're not asking that question, we can't even begin to ask these other questions about how to get along uh, with our spouse or how to get along with the conflicts inside our own private psyches. They are all contingent on this broader question of whether the fundamental story that we're telling about ourselves here on this earth is viable. The character of Dorothy says at one point she's dealing with a husband who can't move and has become, in a sense, what we would call a vegetable, yeah. which I'm sure is yeah. intentional. Uh, the best argument in the world won't change a person's mind. The only thing that can do that is a good story. And yet at the same time, George Lakoff tells us that it isn't necessarily the story. It's taking the story or a story and making it as personal as possible. And I'm glad you invoked Lakoff. I think more than anyone, he really has his finger on what's happening now and what narrative the current administration has been selling. And he calls that narrative stern paternalism. It's men above women, whites above all other uh, races, Americans above all other nationalities, and for purposes of our conversation, humans above all other species. It's this rigid pecking order of domination and control, the right of those at the top of this pyramid 
to have dominion and mastery over the the bottom of the pyramid. Um, For him to identify that trope is to make it easier for us to see in the narratives that we're telling where that story is catching hold, why it's attractive to people, how it's marketed and sold and packaged. It could also be that when a narrative becomes threatened, it fights back. And that's what we're seeing. You know, uh, there are moments in history where certain configurations, certain political or social institutions realize that the handwriting is on the wall and the project is somehow doomed. And more often than not, a response will be to double down on the losing proposition and to speed up the rate at which the destruction is being done. And I think when we withdraw from the Paris Accords, well, when we cut 85% of Bears Ears Monument and return it to extraction, when we start to roll back the last half century of water protection and air protection and species protection, what we're hearing is a last gasp of an ideology of a way of life, of a way of thought that knows itself to be doomed and is simply trying to double down and implement as much of its will as possible in a kind of all-out hysterical denial of the bill coming due. Brings us to an element in the book that kind of comes toward the end, but it's not really a spoiler, which is Patricia Westerfield's use of the word unsuicide, that mankind, if we were going to save the planet, would just all kill ourselves. But that's really not a solution either. That's right. Her great insight is that there has never been a nature separate from man, just as there has never been a man separate from nature. What we're looking for is a revolution in our way of thinking, that no longer needs to feel that safety somehow lies in denying the natural processes of life and death, that no longer requires a sense of mastery or control or separation that can see in other creatures qualities that we have always thought of as uniquely human. What she is urging is first an unblinding, the recognition the, the ability to extend sanctity that we ordinarily reserve only for ourselves, to extend the capacity of human identification to things so increasingly different from us. And it's only by that process, by understanding the will, the agency, the ingenuity, the memory, the social quality, the connective, collective intelligence of things that we thought were merely resources that we can come back home and and come back and reintegrate into not what we call the real world, which is always our man-made world, but the living world, the biological world. You have another character who is in Silicon Valley inventing a super game, and this character doesn't quite play the same role as all of the other characters, but on a deeper level, what he's doing parallels the rest of the story. Can you go into a little about why you decided to create this character and put him central, but at the same time aside from the rest of the tale? His name is Nile Mehta. 
He's a first-generation Indian-American. His father is an immigrant from Gujarat who comes to, to work for Intel and helps create one of the very first microprocessors. And he is, in a sense, the embodiment of the person who first yearns for a migration into this perfectly controllable, perfectly inhabitable and magical world of the digital simulation and who later becomes disaffected with it or who needs to turn it back outward in a productive way into this larger search, this larger program of finding meaning in the living world and accommodating it. So, yes, he, he spends many years in the massive multiplayer online gaming world, creating new generations, new upgrades, new versions of World of Warcraft, Second Life, you know, name your uh, simulated existence. But it keeps coming up against a Midas problem, that somehow these simulations simply run in accelerated fashion into the same problem that we uh, in, in the physical world are finding, which is everything turns to gold. You know, how, how much is enough, Mr. Rockefeller? How much money is enough? To which the answer is just a little bit more. He becomes, in the second half of the book, a spokesperson for another possibility. Often, to go back to Jameson's quote about easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism, that's because when the cry for ecological sanity says we have to give up everything that we have and go back to a pre-technological condition, every sane human being knows that's not going to happen. We simply can't go there. And we might be driven there against our will by enormous catastrophe, right? But we cannot elect to do that. We can't see that as part of a, a, a meaningful narrative for our future. Nina Mehta holds out this possibility that somehow our digital prosthetics, our evolutionary descendants in a way, might provide the interpretive matrix for understanding our ancestral forebears. That is, only through the ability to use massive data, deep learning, artificial intelligence, the automated acquisition of, of, of sensor data about the environment and to process it rapidly and enormously in real time, can we really understand how complex ecosystems work and can we really begin to understand how human intervention might most usefully shape that future forest. And, you know, the forest has always been shaped by man so long as there has been a man. So the object is not to say, let us move forward into this fantasy that we can return the world to wilderness. That's not going to happen. But somehow, let us use what we do best, these incredibly powerful prosthetics, to make us more capable of coming to life on its terms. It's interesting to point out that the rise of the environmental movement, ecological thinking in general, is concurrent with the rise of computation. It may be that it was this ability to process enormous amounts of data rapidly enough, faster than any individual or groups of human beings could do it on their own without these prosthetics that allowed us to begin to see how complex systems work. 
So his vision is simply, it's not technological utopianism. It's a kind of pragmatic, technically mediated, but environmentally humble vision for a, a reintegration of past, present, and future. It's kind of a template then. Yes. And people ask me if I share that vision, if I think we can get there. You know, I don't know that that's my role as an author to judge the various characters and decide how viable each of their visions is. I myself do not know how to balance my own optimism and my own pessimism. One of the early reviewers of this book said, I've never read a book so unrelentingly bleak and yet so unremittingly optimistic or hopeful. And I, I, I like that. I like this idea that the book somehow takes a look at the worst and doesn't flinch and doesn't turn away from it, but doesn't give up on the possibility that we, with this godlike capacity to imagine and project and model and empathize and extend thought into the world, might yet somehow come up with a story to make it possible for us to continue living here. If man is separate from everything else, then on one level, some people could say, well, we have mastery over it all. And the others would say, well, let's get rid of ourselves and let the world do whatever it's going to do. But both of those ignore the fact that we are animals and we are living in the world and we can either be parasites or symbiotic. That's right. And you know what's interesting because that is the deepest conflict of having a conscious animal. And in a sense, all our stories are about that. This book is ostensibly a book about a handful of people who try to save the trees. But of course, trees don't need saving, and they don't need us to save them. That strategy of arborescence has been around for hundreds of millions of years. It's survived several mass extinctions. And on the eve of this newest human-induced mass extinction, that solution stands as good as any large-scale, large-organism solution. It stands as good as a chance as any to make it through the challenges of the changing world, of the, of the transformed earth. We're the ones who need saving. We're the upstarts who come along four seconds before midnight and whose immense power, immense capacity for transformation is so precarious and, and proceeds uh, so heedlessly. So the book does a reverse toward the end, and you realize that you're actually reading a plea for uh, a different kind of salvation, one that starts in the transformation of our own ability to look, to see, and to find the miraculous in something that's not us. A book like The Time of Our Singing changed you. That was the first time I spoke with you. And in that interview in the LA Review, you talk about how this book changed who Richard Powers is. Well, let me start with a very literal, I mean, a very material thing, which is in the five years that I spent researching, I kept reading about where the small pockets of old growth are still left. I should, I should say it will open a lot of people's eyes to hear that of all of the 
massive, you know, the four incredible, supposedly inexhaustible forests that covered this continent when Europeans first came here, as much as 95 to 98 percent of it has been cut down, replaced by tree plantations or second growth forest or agricultural land. But of the uncut forest, there may be only uh, three to five percent of what was uh, once existed on the continent. I kept reading about these old growth forests, and for purposes of the book, I wanted to see them. So I traveled to, to them wherever I could. People repeatedly said that if you want to see an eastern old growth forest, that the Smoky Mountains was a great place to see it. And I went down, down there about three years ago, and you know, I've been in a lot of forests, and I, I thought I knew what an eastern forest looked like. But when you walk up through the regrowth and into forest that has changed very little for 10,000 years, it's astonishing. And, you know, it smells different, it sounds different, it looks different, the quality of the light is different. You immediately detect a kind of depth and richness of uh, diversity of species that, that isn't present in, in a regrowth forest. I liked it so much that I bought a house there and moved down there, and I've been living there ever since. And that's now in my backyard, and it's now part of my almost daily practice to go down into the woods and, and walk and see what happens. You know, the Richard Powers before this book was quite work-driven and would sit at a desk until that thousand words uh, a day was done. And then it freed me up to, to do what I wanted to for the rest of the day. Now I'm much more inclined to say, let's see what 18 miles might do. And, you know, if, if there are thoughts and words along the way, I'll get them down. If not, we'll see what happens tomorrow. Does this mean that you haven't started another book? No, it means the next book has been done in a much different way, with much more pleasure to me, and much more attention to the world under my feet. What is the subject matter? It answers the question that goes unanswered in this book, which is, what would it take to bring about that revolution? What would it take to get us to stop fleeing into safety and opening ourselves up? to greenness? What would it take to unblind us? What would it take to get us to commit on suicide? You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Olinsky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.